All right, and we are back for another edition of Exploring Faith and Pursuing Grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. And joining us tonight is Lachelle Burkett. Lachelle is the executive director of an organization called Hope Redefined. And Lachelle, we really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to join us for a conversation that is a continuation of a conversation, albeit taken from a different angle, that we had not long ago with Brandon Johnson on porn addiction. And this is something that you specialize in helping people with. And we are thrilled that you're with us tonight. Lachelle, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. I'm really excited. Well, Kevin reached out to you, and I know that this is a follow-up that we have wanted to do since we released those episodes with Brandon on porn addiction. Those have been very popular episodes, and we've received a lot of good feedback, and we've also received some further follow-up questions, and that's when Kevin started to kind of put some feelers out to see who he could find that is qualified to discuss this from another perspective, and that's when he was introduced to you, and you guys make contact, and you're on with us now. So if you would, would you mind sharing with us and our audience some of your bona fides, some of your qualifications and what you guys do at Hope Redefined and how that ties into what we're going to talk about tonight. Absolutely. So um, to give you all the the specials, I am the executive director of Hope Redefined. We've been a nonprofit uh, ministry since 2018. And this ministry was actually birthed out of my own story. Um, my husband uh, actually confessed to a porn addiction about 18 months into our marriage, and it led me into a very um, isolating and very lonely journey of trying to figure out how I'm supposed to navigate some of this um, in a culture and, in, of course, in a lot of church that doesn't talk about this and really doesn't yeah. even understand that a woman needs support. Um, and as well as being in the executive director of the organization, um, I'm also a trained professional coach. Um, I specialize in recovery work and betrayal trauma, and I am also APSAT um, certified, which is an organization that specifically uh, trains professionals in this area of working in betrayal trauma. Wow. Okay. So you're definitely eminently qualified for this discussion. So fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Kevin, he, Kevin has really dealt with more of the questions that have come from those previous episodes we did. And Kevin, you were sharing with, with Lachelle and I, before we hit record, and you had shared this with me beforehand through text and through some of the conversations you and I have just in our day to day about how you have had several women reach out to you asking for resources that, that women and wives can utilize if their husbands are involved in this. And that's when you decided to begin to reach out to see what we might be able to come up with to have a follow-up. Yeah. We actually had a listener who contacted us and she just confided in us. Of course, everything is confidential, but she just confided in us that, her husband had been a porn addict for, for quite some time, and uh, they were both Christians. He he had been struggling. He didn't want to be a porn addict, obviously. It was something that he believed was wrong, something he didn't want to be a part of, but something that he just continued to participate in. Or he would he would do well maybe for a, you know, a short period of time, and then he would have a relapse again, which is very common, and we'll probably get into that here a little bit later. Um, and she just said that she would like to hear a female voice on this topic and what to do when you love your husband, your husband loves you. Um, and there's obviously there is uh, there's a big struggle going on, but at the same time, the husband is showing that he 
you know, he's, he's trying to show progress. He wants to change. Um, but what do you do? And even when there is progress, there tends to be a feeling inside of lack of trust, the betrayal. How does how does the how does the female overcome that? How does the female deal with that? And usually the focus is so much on the male, which is actually what our episodes covered specifically was how to recover and how to continue to stay sober after participating in uh, a porn addiction. And so what about the female? And I thought that was a phenomenal question. In fact, when this young woman reached out to me, I actually invited her to be on our podcast. <laughs> uh, if you email us, you're probably going to get an invitation is all I'm saying, <laughs> uh, because we love to just discuss with anybody and everybody. Um, of course, she said because of her situation, um, she would rather not do that. She didn't feel comfortable coming on, at least right now. And uh, but she did actually pass on Lachelle your information, and she mm-hmm. said that she had used some of your resources and tools, and that you were phenomenal. And she thought that you would be great to have on our program. So I immediately reached out and just said, "Hey, you don't know who I am, but my name's Kevin. I co-host a podcast. We would love to have you on." And uh, and here we are. But. I also work with a recovery group, a guy's recovery group. And uh, one time, I don't know, a few, probably a few months back, some of uh, just some of us were hanging out with our wives and a couple of the ladies there. They're like, you know, there's these guys get together and they support each other and help each other. And what about us wives? Like we need help. We need support, too. And uh, so that's what we're going to talk about specifically tonight. Now, I want to put a few disclaimers because when we deal with a situation like this or a topic like this, every situation's different. And sometimes people listen to episodes like this to either find justification or condemnation. Um, sometimes they try to weaponize episodes like this. We first ask that you don't do that. We're trying to just have an open and honest discussion about this tonight. And we do not uh, claim, and I'm sure Lachelle would say the same thing, to be giving anybody specifics on how to handle a situation when we do not know all the specifics to a situation. Um, So with that said, we are trying to lay forth a few assumptions in this episode because Lachelle and I were talking and there's so many different directions we could go. There's so many different ways. And like most of our guests, we'll probably have you back on in the future to kind of discuss, especially if we have some questions after the episode is aired. But a few assumptions we're going to begin with is, uh, is, is, first of all, we're going to assume we're dealing with married couples who love each other who have proper attitudes and who are not in dangerous or abusive environments. So Mm -hmm. our main focus is going to be on situations just like the young lady when she emailed us a few months ago, where the husband's dealing with porn addiction um, or perhaps someone who is married to, to their husband who has dealt with it in the past and who wants to recover uh, from addiction. Maybe they have never sought help. Maybe they are in the middle of seeking help, but they're continuing to relapse. Or maybe they've actually, um, they, they've recovered and they have been sober for perhaps months, maybe even years. Um, and our main focus is going to be dealing with the female and primarily talking about tools and resources for women for how they can heal how they can cope, how they can be supportive during this process, uh, as well as how to handle things when the husband perhaps has a relapse and trying to understand what's going on both with the the male and the female in these types of situations. So with all of that said, uh, Lachelle, you had mentioned this is something that you have personally had experience with. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about your story? Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll kind of 
I mean, our, our story is 17 years in the making, if not longer than that. Um, so forgive me if it sounds like it's really expedited, but I'm a bit of a golden retriever by personality. So if you call me, I'll talk to you all day long. It's totally fine. So, <laughs> We're going to get um, along just fine then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think a part of my story, what's important to talk about is um, I didn't grow up in a faith-based home. Uh, my parents divorced when I was very young. And the idea or the concept or the visual consumption of women was very normal in my house of origin. So um, several of the men in my life, in my home, uh, were just very open and pornography was not something that necessarily I understood. I mean, I knew what it was. Um, and it was difficult for me growing up in a, you know, a non-Christian home to really figure out, okay, I see it happening. I know I don't like it, but clearly these guys are looking at it and they're important male figures in my life. So it was just something that I knew that men did. Um, so then fast forward to meeting my husband and I would tell you that he was uh, a lot of his personality and what attracted me to him was that he was very different than any of the other types of men that I had in my family with my stepdad and father and those types of things. And so um, when I talk about my husband's exposure and his disclosure of porn, porn addiction, I truly did not have a clue. I had no idea. We actually dated for seven years. Um, we had a long distance relationship. So that led to us having to date for a long time. Um, and then we, we got married and we moved in um, to, we moved to Knoxville, Tennessee together and 18 months into our marriage, we actually had gone to a church service and a guy had gotten up and shared his own personal testimony and struggle with porn. And I just remember being in awe because I was still very young in my faith and it wasn't really common for me to see someone talk about messy stuff like that. Yeah. And so we got in the car and I was just like, whoa, I was like, that guy was like so vulnerable. And I was like, well, and I had that moment where I was like, well, you don't struggle with porn, right? And he was like, no. <laughs> right? And I believe, I was like, yeah, I mean, of course you don't. Like, I don't know why I even asked that. And I just kind of moved on and thought that was the end of that conversation. And so later that evening, he came back and found me in the house. And he began to confess that he did, in fact, he was, in fact, struggling with porn. Um and I use the word struggle because my husband did not identify as an addict in the very beginning. He just kept saying, I'm struggling with this. And so he did say he struggled and he said, hey, I think I want to join that men's group that that guy was talking about. And I thought, well, that sounds just great. Go do that men's group and I'll see you later. Like, And I truly thought that was the end of our conversation. I thought he'll go to this group. He'll not want to do that kind of thing again. And then we're just going to move on with life and it'll be over. And he did join the men's group. He, he took the initiative to do that. But about four months later, he went on a work trip and he ended up what we would call relapsing while on the trip. Um, he came home and he did, by the grace of God, he confessed to me. He told me what he had done. But I will tell you that in that moment, that is when I lost my ever loving mind. And so uh, the, the clinical side of that is that that is when the true relational betrayal set in for me because my belief at that point was, well, I extended grace to you and knew that you were going to go do what you needed to do to get better. And I just thought that that was an agreement that we had made that you would never do this again. And so here he was falling back into it and it just shattered me. It wrecked me. 
And so he continued to stay in his group. And at that point, though, things got very difficult for me. I attempted to reach out for support in our young married couples group. I sought out um, an older woman trying to find a mentor at church. Um, And each person I would try to connect with, um, essentially, I just experienced new levels of rejection. I was already feeling rejected by my husband because my first belief system, like most women, was that I thought this has to be something wrong with me. Like, why else would you do that? If you're not pleased or satisfied with me, then there must be a reason why you're doing this. And we'll talk about that again in a minute as to why that's totally bad thinking. But as I started reaching out for support, connection, and community with other women, oftentimes I was met with, I'm sorry, I don't have any connection to that. I don't know what to say. Um, And so I just felt really lonely. Like I'm the only one who's, you know, got this train wreck going on in her house Um, I had one woman who did say, oh yeah, we dealt with that, but it was years ago and he's much better now, but it didn't really give me any place to know how to process or experience or heal or anything. Um, but, and so that was generally the, that was generally the response I would get. And I even remember having this moment where a girl, a woman had come up to me. I was in my twenties, so I feel like we were all still girls. But anyway, <laughs> um, she, she came up to me in the ch- children's wing, and I didn't have kids at the time. And she just said, "How are?" She said, "Hey, how are you today, Lachelle?" And I was like, "Well, let me tell you." And it was just like, blah, blah, and I just let it all out, right? <laughs> and she just like eyeballs got real big, and it was just like a slow backward walk, right? Because yeah. I was hurting so bad. And I just desperately wanted someone to come in and just, just be with me. I didn't know what I needed. I didn't know where I needed to go. So as that was transpiring for me and I was experiencing all these other levels of rejection in other relationships that I was hoping would be safe. And of course, I'm not feeling safe with my husband right now because he's still choosing to do something I thought we agreed not to do. It started to morph into things that became, I started to become somebody I'd never thought I would be. I started doing crazy stuff. I was, um, I mean, I would rage at the drop of the hat because I was hurting so bad and I didn't know what to do with myself. And so just the slightest thing would just set me over the edge. And of course my husband's like, now she's gone crazy. Um, I started doing things like I would follow him to group because suddenly I became so paranoid that I thought he's not actually going. Or I would even go, he's going, but what if he's meeting prostitutes at the church and they're leaving and they're leaving his car? I mean, it just became all consuming. I became addicted to his addiction. And the truth of the matter was, is that what I was attempting to do in all that effort, while someone on the outside would be like, this girl is crazy. Look at her, like driving past the church. But what I was trying to do was I felt so unsafe. And so I was attempting to do anything I could to create safety for myself. So if that meant go past the church to see if he's there for group to confirm that he is in fact doing that, because mind you, I'm feeling very volatile for my husband, right? I don't feel safe for him either because every time he tells me something, I just break into a bazillion pieces, which is appropriate. Like our world is not good. It's not that he shouldn't have told me. And it's not that I shouldn't have had these strong reactions because it was true. It was painful. But on the other side of it, I know that he was struggling to even connect with me because I was so broken. I was so painful. And his shame 
was so strong because every time he would act out, he knew that the first thing that would happen is that shame response would just come up and overwhelm him. And he wanted to avoid that as much as possible. So we stepped into that. We started um, to give you a little bit more of our story. My husband did eventually find levels of sobriety. He was sober for five years and we began to start a family. And then five years into his recovery, um, or he would actually call that sobriety at this point, not explain a little difference between sobriety and recovery, but he was sober for five years and then he had a major relapse. He was at work and he got busted and he had to come home and tell me he was going to lose his job. Oh, oh no. This is, this is not five, good. five years where probably I would assume during that time, things were going a whole lot better. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably trust was starting to build back. And, Absolutely. And yeah. he lost, did he, you said he lost his job? He didn't, he, they ended up working a deal with him because his contract was close to being in ending anyway. Oh, um, wow. And he actually worked for the government. And so they, they extended his contract or they, I don't know exactly. I don't can't remember exactly what they did to make it happen, but essentially he didn't lose his job, but had that situation not be happening with the contract, he would have lost his, his job. So, so how did, how did you feel? Because these, you said that, you know, the, the very going back to your story, you know, the first time that you had this conversation and he said, yes, this is something that I've struggled with. And it was okay. I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to church group and get some education, get some support, put a band, you know, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, you said four months later that that was very mm-hmm. hurtful because you're like, wait a minute, we've already dealt with this. Why are yeah. you doing this again? And so now five years goes by and there's this relapse. How yeah. did you deal with that? Well, we, um, we had gotten a little bit of like support from a mentor couple in our lives during that five years of sobriety. And they had said to us, you guys really need to have a game plan. Should there be a relapse? Mm -hmm. Um, and that meant having some level of what is the boundary? What is the consequence to this? Because a part of, and I know this now after working with women for as long as I have, part of the issue is, is that when that type of, um, uh, emergency transgression. Yes. Whatever you want to call it. When that happens in that relationship, oftentimes you feel like you have to make a reactionary decision Mm -hmm. and that can feel very confusing. And of course, when an individual is lost in their addiction, they're, 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 they're very focused on themselves at that moment. So you trying to enforce a boundary that you just came up with because she's navigating her own trauma. And it's like, I can't believe we're doing this again. And, you know, when he's, there was a, there's a pushback there. So us being proactive as a couple allowed us to be able to know, should this ever happen again, this is what will happen. And so we had both agreed. Garen actually had come up with the consequence and he, you know, he was very confident later. He confessed that in a counseling appointment. He was like, I was really cocky. I don't know what I was thinking (laughs) because his, his consequence was his first consequence was if I ever do this again, I'm moving out for a month. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, wow. Was, he, okay. he probably I know. he was never going to do it, right? Exactly. That's what his, yeah. <laughs> that he never thought he would do it again. <laughs> and I remember saying, wow, a month is a long time. And we didn't even have children at that point when he had, we'd made this boundary. And I just said, I think it's important to know that you're going to probably leave the house, but I feel like we have the opportunity to decide what that's going to look like um, when the situation happens. And so that boundary, that boundary agreement was in place, like I said, for about four years before it ever came into practice. And at that point, when it happened, 
we then had three small children. And so we had a four-year-old, a three-year-old, and a six-month-old. Oh, dude. And so, yeah. And so we, and he followed through. I mean, he, I came home that evening and he confessed to me what was happening, told me that he had been actually, and he had relapsed so much. He had been doing it for three months straight at work. Um, and so I just, if I'm totally honest with you, I'm pretty positive that the Holy Spirit or angels were holding me to that couch because all I remember saying was, that's a real bummer. <laughs> and I don't really, I mean, I just was like, it was so hard to process that we were Now, was that the PG place. version or is that, that actually- That was totally the truth. Like, it was the truth. But I will say that, and, and I know that women eventually get there. What had happened for me was a part of my healing process was God had given me such opportunity for me to begin to understand that I was not the cause of this. And so I had the- the ability to see him as a brother in Christ who had fallen in sin again. And that just made me very sad for him. But I also had such an assurance that God was going to take care of me and he was going to take care of our kids. And so I hated that that was the decision or choice that he had made. And I think that's why that's a real bummer came out because there was such a, um, over the course of time and healing, there had been this like disentanglement for me because before early on, anytime there was a hiccup in sobriety, I was going down, we were going down together Mm -hmm. essentially. And this time I had healed enough to be able to say, you might be going down, but I don't have to go down with you. Yeah. I know that God has made us two becoming one, but these are not choices that I am making. And so therefore I do not have to I do not have to be a victim to his choice. I mean, granted, we I was potentially going to have to live with consequences of losing a job and income because I was home with our kids. But in that season, that was my response. So, well, and so he, he actually, oh, oh go ahead, Lee. Well, I, I was going to say that's, that's an incredible story. And whenever you were going through this that in, you know, your initial response early on, whenever he first revealed to you that this was the case and with his first relapse. And in your words, you, you know, you said you went a little bit, a little bit crazy because you had internalized that. Is that a common response that many wives have whenever their husband is involved with a porn addiction or whenever they do relapse? Is that something that commonly happens and if it is, what is it psychologically that takes place that prompts that type of, and I hope this isn't misconstrued, but that extreme visceral response that, that you experience and that others may experience? What, what is it that drives that? And is that even a common thing that happens? I think it's more common than we realize. Um, but if I'm honest with you, it's because it's trauma. Okay. And I know that for a man who's navigating his own porn addiction, the idea of thinking that his wife is navigating trauma is hard to imagine. But if I were to put this in a different perspective, it would be like we are sitting in a vehicle going down the highway and my husband is driving and he knows that he's about to hit this 18 wheeler and I have no clue. Hmm. And so he slams into this 18 wheeler and it completely destroys our vehicle and everything. And the perception is, is that my husband actually gets up and walks away from the accident. 
And I am left there literally bleeding to death because the whole thing shocked me, right? I have injury. My heart is bleeding. I don't understand. There's confusion. I'm trying to figure out how this happened. I trusted him driving that car. There's so much that comes with that. And so if you begin to look at someone like, right? So if I was truly in an 18, if I was in an accident, we were hit by an 18 wheeler, no one would turn to me and be like, Lachelle, you need to get up and go support him. Make sure he's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Right. But we do that often. We do that often when they're navigating this type of internal trauma inside of a marital system. So, and I'll, let me explain how that looks because this was part of our story as well. And this was a bit of where the imbalance I see happen often for women who are trying to do this is, so when we began to seek out support, we go in and we sit down with this pastor and the first thing he does after we tell him what's going on, okay, there's pornography in our marriage, so on and so forth. The first thing he does is he usually reaches around and he grabs a book and he hands it to the husband and he's like, all right, here's the book. And there's a group that meets on Tuesdays and I'll be following up with you every week. Okay. You got that? And we're both like, yep, got it. Nothing is said to me. Mm. Nothing. Not a, how are you doing? Are you okay? This is traumatic. Are you grieving this? Like what's going on with you? Nothing. So guess what happens for me? My interpretation of that moment is, oh, okay. So one, this is his problem because he was given all the resources, which tells me he's going to fix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Right. And so I'm like, okay, so it's his problem and he's going to fix it. And I'm just supposed to wait until, until he gets does. better. <laughs> right. Until he gets better. Cause once he gets better, then I'll be better. So there's this, unfortunately, it's a really unrealistic expectation that is put on guys, on addicts, because that's not, I mean, when you begin to unpack sexual addiction, it, that's like a huge deficit for them is to be able to turn around and help other people heal. It, that takes some real recovery work. But let me t- go on to tell you more about this example or this situation. So they give him the book. He has a group and the pastor is going to call him once a week. So we go home, he lays the book on the coffee table, and it literally sits there for two weeks. <laughs> Guess what happened yeah. to me? You started reading it. No, that, <laughs> I, yes, oh, I'd already read it, right? I read it the first week and was like, we have to know what's in here because we've been told this is the, this is the silver bullet, right? Yeah. This is yeah. what's going to yeah. heal us. This is it. Read this. Yeah. But my husband's not touched it. So I begin to become what they refer to as a nag. <laughs> okay. When you're going to read it, right? When you're gonna I'm read going, are you going to read yeah. that? Because the pastor said you were going to read that. Like, you need to read that. Why? Because my understanding was, is that whatever's in that book is going to make my pain stop. Mm, yeah. Whatever's in that book is going to make you not go do this again, which will never make me feel this way again. Because I assure you, not one woman ever wants to experience the feeling of sexual betrayal or betrayal in general, but in this regard. And so that's where that imbalance happens because our recoveries look very different as a husband and wife. Another thing I'll say is oftentimes when guys confess their sin, they have this instantaneous relief. Mm. Like, oh my gosh, I've been holding that for so long, that shame, that guilt, that this... And so you'll hear them talk about, you know, all of a sudden they're singing in church or they're reading their Bibles and they have this relief, which is amazing. And they should, 
But the difficulty is, is that she suddenly has been given this brokenness that she has no idea what to do with. And as she seeks out people to say, help me, all of them say, I'm sorry, I can't relate to you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's, that's something I had a good friend of mine. uh, He's a good friend of mine now, because once, once I recovered, um, I, I fully, I, I would like to kind of hear your definitions on this as well, but, um, you know, not having relapses in, in many, many years. And I just started trying to help people as well, because one of the things that, and that actually helps me too. And, but one of the things that I realized is what you're talking about, uh, for men as well. And that is just the lack of vulnerability, the lack of resources, um, even throwing a book at someone, as you as you put it, you know they they sometimes don't get read. A lot of times they don't get read, and even if they do get read, uh, are 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 they actually practicing the disciplines that are within that book? And even further furthermore, the idea, as you pointed out, is the the man knows this is something that he's been dealing with. Sometimes maybe all you know their whole life, especially yeah. depending upon how old they are. Um, we talked about first exposure to pornography and things of that nature. And, you know, I was, I had been a porn addict since I was about 12 years old. Yeah. And uh, in fact, one of my books uh, or my first book I wrote about just um, how my own legalism kind of kept me trapped in, in, in the porn addiction. Not that I'm blaming that, but in my mind, if you were to ask me, are you a porn addict? I would say no, because I had just said a prayer you know, earlier that morning after I had looked at pornography and no, I'm not a porn addict. I already asked God to forgive me. Everything's, you know, I'm never going to look at it again until the the next morning or the next night or whatever it might be. But anyway, I say all that just to say that I I love the fact that you took your story and what you went through and you are now helping so many different people through Hope Redefined, so many different women, because there's there's very few resources for men by and large within most churches. Now there are a lot more a lot of resources out there, but you've got to know what you're looking for. Yeah. But there there are there's hardly any for men as it is. And uh, that was one of the things we had Brandon come on our program and talk about and when you try to implement those things, a lot of times they get shut down because people don't want to talk about it. Um it it hits too close to home and you almost always know who's struggling with it because of the ones that are like, no, we don't need to talk about this. They're giving themselves mm-hmm. away. But I can't imagine from a female perspective. I mean, if, if, if there's hardly any tools from a male perspective, what about a female perspective? And as you pointed out, being told to read your Bible more, pray more, or yeah, well, I dealt with that years ago. Good luck. Um, and not really receiving any, any help, any nuts and bolts to be able to try to figure out what's going on. And I want to ask a question because This is a question that my wife and I talked a lot about and something that kind of helped her realize what's going on um, with porn addiction. Like what exactly is porn addiction? And one of the things that um, we talked about when we were dating and she found out I was looking at porn, she says, well, you know, do you not think I'm pretty? Do, do you, is, is that what it is? Do you not think that I look good enough? Do I need to dress? You know, like what's, what's going on? And I kept trying to reiterate, no, it hasn't, it, it has nothing to do with you. And which sounds cold and callous, but she's like, how, how can it not have anything to do with me? I said, it really doesn't. It, it has nothing to do with you. And, and, th- and that was so hard to communicate. And, and so she started to research and, and find books and 
Um, you know, she started reading studies of even men who were having, uh, who were looking up porn on their wedding night after they just had wonderful sex with their wife, but yet their wife wakes up and they're at the computer. Like, what's happening? Can you kind of explain a little what's going on when a man has a porn addiction like this and why can't in many cases they just stop when they they claim they want to and really even want to. I think that probably sounds like your husband's a wonderful man, um, even mm-hmm. kind of giving himself consequences and sticking with those consequences, which yeah. big kudos for him. But, you know, it, it was kind of that going back to your own experience. That first time he came out, it, you know, it didn't seem like that really hurt you as much compared to that wait a minute, you confess this, This you're supposed to be done with this. Why is this happening again? So can you kind of go into detail about that and what's really happening in that addiction? Yeah. So porn addiction at the root of it is actually, um, it's emotional issue. It's a deficit is what it is. And so, and that's the root of all addiction is the inability to process emotions in a healthy way. And so I'll explain that a little bit more. So just like you were saying, Kevin, you're started when you're in adolescence. My husband started very close to the same age. And when you begin to understand children, childhood development, that is when the uh, emotions become very big. I mean, we talk about having teenagers. I have two tween daughters, right? We got lots well, of emotions. That's your heart. I know. We got <laughs> lots of one. emotions over here. I can feel here. you there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still looking for a secret oil that's going to get them to... Not be upset hey, just, about a hairbrush. Pray, pray and read the Bible, know. right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, um, but what tends to happen in families who don't have a high level of emotional intelligence, which means they don't know how to navigate emotions well, these parents who, you know, that don't understand emotions, they typically hand down the lack or the inability to manage emotions. And so in, I can just tell you my, my household, like emotions were a no-go, like nobody's got capacity. The only person who could have emotions or big emotions was my mother, right? Hers were the biggest and they trumped everything. And if you had big emotions and it wore her out, she would shut, just verbally shut you down. Right. And so when, when we're kids, what we do with that is, okay, well, I don't have any, I don't know how to bring it out on the outside. So I will bring it on the inside and I'll internalize it. And then at some point, there is something that is introduced that helps disconnect us from the emotion. So for most boys, a lot of men, it's porn Mm. because that's one of those things that just starts floating around with guys around that age. I can tell you for girls, you'll see this with food. You'll see it with exercise because it's just part of the, I mean, depending on who they're hanging with, right? So the, the best way I can explain it is that What's happening with a man when porn addiction is present is it is a, it's a, it's a difficulty in coping with big emotions. And so I can tell you that going, if you start to like be reflective on my husband, that five-year mark where he had major relapse, I can just tell you all the levels of stress that were happening there. So we had just bought a house. We had just had our third baby. We had to buy a minivan because we didn't have a big enough vehicle for all these kids. And he also knew that his contract was coming to an end. So his work was about to finish. There was tons of stress in his life. Now, does that give him permission to choose to do what he did? No. But does it make sense that these levels of big emotions, he doesn't have the tools or the know-how how to actually navigate stress well. And so after it gets to be so much, he wants to check out. He wants to disconnect as fast as he can. 
So the way I oftentimes will explain this to women, and again, I don't want to minimize porn addiction, but for me, I have a food problem. I love food and I have a food addiction and I've been navigating it for years. And so the best way for me to help women understand that is, is like when I have a stressful day, I have a sad day, I have an overwhelming day. I come into my kitchen and I'm like, I don't want to feel like this anymore. I'm done with these feelings. And so I go to my pantry and I start surveying the land. What is it going to take for me to stop feeling this, right? Oh, Oreos seem like a good idea. Or how about those chips, right? And so that's what I do. I consume it. So here's the complication though, because every woman says, how is he not thinking about me when he's about to consume porn? Like, I don't understand how he can't even possibly consider me. And the truth is, is that when addiction, when the brain is firing in that way, your rational thinking section of your brain is totally offline. Mm -hmm. So when I am standing in my pantry, I am not thinking, how will this affect diabetes in the future? (laughs) I'm not thinking, gosh, that sugar is going to make me crash in about an hour and then my children will need me. Right? How good it's going to taste. <laughs> right. There's no rational thinking at that yeah. moment. And so it's a disconnect. I want to disconnect from those emotions as fast as possible. And that is what is at the root of porn addiction in and of itself, too. It's an emotional disconnect. That's what we want to do. So, Lachelle, can I ask a follow up to that? And it, yeah. and it, in it, with your experience, if this is something that maybe you don't want to get into, or if you don't feel confident speaking to, but when you're talking about this, one of the things that I'm hearing is that there's something going on with neurotransmitters within the brain. Like that's where my mind immediately goes. So does this have to do with dopamine and serotonin levels in terms of addiction and wanting to disconnect from that is life so stressful and epinephrine and cortisol and all of these other stress hormones are so high that you want that dopamine surge or serotonin surge. You want that kick to help disconnect that stress load from that oversaturation of those neurotransmitters. Because whenever you started to liken it to food addiction, it, it, that really clicked with me. I, and you just made a connection that I've never considered before. It's like, well, holy smokes, if that's the case, because for me, my disconnection is either video games or Brazilian jiu-jitsu, or I sit down and I just beat the ever-loving snot out of my drums. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's what I'll do. And for me, that gets me out of my own head and it helps me decompress from that stress. And I know when you do something you enjoy, it leads to that serotonin surge, that dopamine surge is neurochemistry playing a role there. And like, like how deep does that rabbit hole go? And I don't know, that's kind of an open-ended question. It's just something that came to mind. It's not really in our notes or anything like that, but like, what, what would you have to say to, to that? part of it? And how does that play a role in the recovery process? Yeah. So the answer is yes. Right. And what the, the victory that you're sharing Lee is that there's a possibility for us to choose healthy coping things versus unhealthy coping. Mm -hmm. So it's not that this is the difference between sobriety and recovery. We have to understand that stress will happen. We are humans. There are lots of, there's lots of stresses, right? It's what we do with it. That's where this, this matters. But of course you're talking about that dopamine hit and the answer is yes. And all of us know that sometimes we need greater hits than others, right? Yes. And so unfortunately, like any addiction, what started out with something that was probably very minimal usage 
potentially will increase and increase and increase. And you have to understand that the porn industry is banking on this. Like they are banking on you wanting more and more and more and more. Like they have studies out Pornhub. I read this whole entire article about how Pornhub knows exactly how many seconds that you will watch a video in order for them to flash a new video up to keep you in and just keep hooking you over and over and over again. It's a, I mean, they, they invest billions of dollars to create addiction. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a proven thing. And the answer is yes <laughs> to your question of the dopamine and brain chemistry. Well, and that is, that's part of what makes it so hard to overcome any addiction because in order to have a healthy, in, in order to have good mental health, you have to have all of those chemicals in balance yep. and it's often minimized just how much of a role our own emotional health plays in different levels of different neurotransmitters at different times. And I mean, the fact that, that Pornhub or whoever else is funding so many of these studies, that doesn't surprise me at all. That's their bread and butter. They make money off of that, not to mention, and you know, without even considering all of the negative effects that the ripple effect that that can have. Um, but anyway, Kevin, I'm sorry, you had something else you were wanting to ask. Go ahead. Well, no, just, just kind of getting, getting back to, um, l- looking at this from, from a female perspective, kind of, kind of getting to the, back to that again, because all of the guys that I work with, um, I, I, I believe have good hearts. Um, you know, I, they, there, there's been a few who've come to the group and they've lasted a week and then they're like, hey, I don't even care. I don't, this is just what I want to do. <laughs> I just, I just like it. I'm going to do it. My wife can get over it. And as we discussed, we're not talking about those, those types of attitudes in this particular podcast. We're talking about those attitudes of, of men who sound like your husband, who, who are really trying their, they're, they're doing the things that they're supposed to be doing for the most part, um, but they're still failing. They're still having relapses. So if you will, I, w- I would like to hear you talk a little bit about that from a female perspective, because this is something that my wife and I have talked a lot about, because that I love the illustration you gave of food addiction. And I actually um, am, am addicted to food too. I've actually gone to counseling for it. And, uh, it's something I've always, I'm a weight watchers. I've always struggled, um, off and on just to, just to try to find consistency. And, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about when you're given that food illustration, especially uh-huh. at nine o'clock at night or nine 30, you right. know, after I've already <laughs> eaten, but I'm just needing something. It's not because I'm, I'm hungry. Uh, it's because I'm addicted. And it's being able to, to, to recognize that. And I, I love that example because what that does in and of itself is I think it allows space and it, it creates space for both the husband and the wife to realize what's going on in that instance. Um, because if the wife believes, okay, my husband doesn't think I'm pretty, he doesn't think that I'm sexually attractive, um, that's why he's doing this versus what you just explained, no, this is an addiction. Um, he is not able to, he's, he maybe has some stress going on. And once again, we're not justifying anything. We're simply giving explanation. That is a whole lot um, healthier and honest to work from than saying, oh, well, he just doesn't love me. Because as you pointed out, the second someone believes that if, if I interpret my wife's actions or if my wife interprets my actions is I'm doing something because I don't like her, I'm doing something in spite or because I don't think she's enough or whatever it might be, the, the chances of that marriage growing is, is slim to none until there, there's some more education. 
and there's some more perspective and better understanding of what's going on. And that's why I think first and foremost, just having that space, having that understanding of what's going on, because a lot of times even the guy doesn't know what's going on. I've had guys tell me, he's like, dude, my wife is hot. I think my wife is hot. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to be with anybody else. I've never been with anybody else, but I look at porn at night and I don't know why. Like my wife, like we have great sex all the time. It's not nothing to do with it. They're confused. They don't know what's going on. And so it's, it's being able to have that education and that knowledge. And that's why so many, it, it frustrates me that so many churches are just, we'll just pray about it, stop it, you know, just move on. And, and they're really not dealing with the problem. They're trying to just deal with the symptoms, but not really the problem. And so I was going to ask you to talk about from a female perspective, when, when, um, when a man relapses, and and you've had that experience, you know, mm-hmm. you've you've had that. How how does a, a woman at that point in time need to navigate? Because I know just like you, probably a lot of wives, they, they want to help, <laughs> right? They're like, okay, I want to help. Just do it. You know, I want to what 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 can their response be not only to help, but also to help themselves so that they don't turn into being an addict for the addict? How, how does, how, how, you know, what are some tools or some resources or some suggestions that you have perhaps experienced in your own life or you've been able to help others with? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to, it's a great question. And I kind of have a really big answer that I'll kind of zero in on. So the first thing I want to say is that uh, to really help with clarification between there is a very clear difference between slip and relapse. Yeah, yeah. There's also a difference between sobriety and recovery. And so let me define those those terms for just a second, and then I'll be able to answer your question a little better. So slip, by definition, is a temporary slip. (laughs) That's what it is, right? Like someone used the explanation or the analogy of walking on the side of a cliff of a mountain and your foot slips. Well, you don't completely fall, right? Mm -hmm. You catch yourself. It was a, it was a, um, a momentary time. So maybe it's a double take. Maybe it's, I got on YouTube and watched a video. I did this one time, got out, recognized what had happened, need to go tell my wife I had a slip, right? Re, um, a relapse is a prolonged choice and action to back returning back to an addictive behavior. And so in my husband's situation, he was doing that consistently for three months, right? That was a relapse, right? Um, the issue with sex addiction or with porn, porn addiction is that nobody can see how many times you are using, right? You're going to pick up when you're dealing with alcohol because <laughs> you're going to see that pretty consistently. Wow. Every three days, he's got a beer in his hand or whatever, right? But when it comes to this type of thing, this stuff is happening consistently under the radar. And nobody so he knows. may come, right. And he may come in and go, oh, well, I slipped. And I slipped today and unfortunately he could be what we call minimizing it. And he's actually, he's full blown relapse, but he just thinks because he didn't look at it for two days in a row, he's back on the wagon or whatever you want to call it from that side. So it's important to know that there's differences in definitions. Now let me talk about sobriety to recovery. So sobriety, really what sobriety is, is, is it's, I'm choosing not to do that behavior anymore and I'm going to white knuckle it. I'm sober. That's what I'm doing. I'm just abstaining from the behavior. It is one thing to know how to abstain from the behavior. Recovery is really more about taking a complete 180 Mm -hmm. 
It is starting to look at what is underneath this behavior and what do I need to change in order to successfully live my life apart from that addictive behavior. So that looks like, wow, my triggers are A, B, and C. Well, just the awareness of what your trigger is, is part of recovery, right? I got to start learning about me as to what gets me to that place that I don't want to be in. So just to give you a little bit of understanding of the difference. Okay. So this is like a eureka moment for me because (laughs) I want to, can I, can I parallel this to food again? Sure. Okay. Because since, since you've, you've talked about this, you know, there have been a lot of times where I have lost a lot of weight and I have gone on crash diets or I will literally just not eat or I will eat just a little bit, barely enough just to keep me going. And my wife always knows that's not going to last, right? Like she knows mm-hmm. you're, you're, as you call it, kind of that white knuckling. Okay, I'm just going to jump in and I'm just going to do this thing. And it works for a week or two. And it may be work even for a month or two, but you haven't actually changed your lifestyle. And I, it, to me, that's like a perfect parallel because so many people, they just, oh, I've got the willpower. I'm just going to do this. And they go crazy and they're not really changing their lifestyle. They're not identifying the habits that created that to begin with. They're just saying, hey, I'm just going to all the willpower in my body. And it lasts for a little while, but they don't make the proper changes. And so in my case, I gained the weight back. In a lot of people's case, they gain more weight back and because they actually haven't had that lifestyle change. And I'm just seeing this parallel because mm-hmm. I, I have known of so many guys who like, OK, I'm done with pornography and they're great. We see this a lot in our in our uh, in our group. I, I'm just, you know, we, we try to identify what's going on. You know, why, why do you think this happened or what we try to, Oh no, 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 don't worry. I'm done with it. I'm done with it. And then, you know, two weeks later they come back. Oh, you know, well, I'm back at it again. What happened? I don't know what happened, you know? And so it's, okay. I, I don't know when you were explaining that, I just see that because we're talking about addiction here, right? I mean, it, you can, you can alcohol, you can pl- just any fill in the blank. Um, but anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you when you said yeah. that. I just was like, wow, that is, and that's why I like Weight Watchers so much side point, because it really does try to teach you how to enjoy food and eat food and not, you know, lose a hundred pounds in, in a month, but actually try to be consistent with your lifestyle. And that's, that's where I think when we deal with the sex addiction, porn addiction, specifically in, in this episode, that's where people's lifestyles have to change. You know, that's mm-hmm. where there has to be understanding of what's going on and that accountability. But anyway, I, I just, when you said that, I thought, wow, light bulb went off there. Yeah. yeah and I'm going to add what I heard you didn't say, Kevin, but probably what you meant was you took ownership. Hmm. Yeah. Your recovery requires ownership. No one can do recovery for you. And I assure you, I attempted to do my husband's recovery for him. And I thought I was really good. <laughs> <laughs> As any dutiful wife would Absolutely. do to try to support her husband. Right? Yeah. I'm a helper. You're the best uh, at it. Yeah, I'm the best. The best. <laughs> and, um, but the reality was, is that that was maddening, right? Because um, I can't, I cannot be in charge of his recovery because I don't get to decide that. And that's a part of what recovery is, is taking ownership and saying, I, as an individual, do not want to live this type of lifestyle anymore. Therefore, I am going to make choices for myself and and make different choices. So that may look like 
We, you know, put filters on our software devices. It may look like we don't watch certain movies. We don't watch certain, you know, shows on Netflix, or we get rid of all these things, like whatever it looks like for you to, to commit to a different lifestyle. Right. I don't hang, we didn't hang out with certain circles of friends that we had for years and years because it just wasn't healthy for us. It wasn't a safe space for him. It wasn't a good place for me, you know? So that was, that's part of the recovery, but in the coupleship, which is a kind of what you were asking about earlier was like, how does this couple recover from relapse? And I'm going to tell you, cause it really is. It's about the couple recovering from relapse. The number one thing I'm going to tell you is, is that he's got to own what happened because if he minimizes or he deflects it, it just ignites that lack of trust all over again, because she's working hard. I promise you every woman desires to trust her husband, but after so many slips or relapses, it feels almost impossible. And then there's moments where we go, I would be an idiot or a fool to think I could trust you again. Mm. But I will assure you, like I have worked with many couples, there is there are appropriate and healthy ways to rebuild trust in a relationship, but it takes work and it takes a lot of vulnerability and it takes ownership of what my behaviors were. And so for him, what's important when that relapse happens is is for sure confessing this to his wife, even at the at the expense of um consequences. Right. Cause really what, what, okay. This is where I see when guys get free from their addiction, the reason they get free is because they finally get their identity in Christ and they finally get, I am worth integrity. I am worth telling the truth. Truth is more important to me than anything else in the whole world. And so that is a game changer when a guy can get his thought process to that and being like, integrity is my number one value. And that's because that's the way God has called me to live is to live in truth. That's going to look different. So that's why I'm saying you've got to tell her the truth, regardless of what the consequence is going to be. And you should anticipate that there be some backlash on that. Like it wouldn't, again, I'm going back to that 18 wheeler. He just wrecked the car again right? You're not going to turn to her and be like, now, now I know this is the fifth time, but look how much time I've had between the last one and this one. Mm. Like every one of us would be like, no, there's healing that has to happen again. Now I will say that for many women, it feels like, oh my gosh, we're starting all the way over. And everything that's happened up to this point has been a total waste. But I would encourage you that it's not a total waste because you guys really have been working to learn and understand how to do this different lifestyle together. So that gives you something to start from. But absolutely, she's going to experience the pain. And so my encouragement for a woman who's navigating a slip or relapse is the number one thing we never do (laughs) or we don't really get permission for is we never get an opportunity to grieve because that is a loss for us. Yeah. As much as a husband doesn't want to admit that there's been a loss, there's a loss. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to my husband at one point, and I say this jokingly now, but it really was true. I said to him at one point, I said, you know, this would have been so much easier if you died. And I <laughs> oh, said, wow. here's why. Because one, somebody would have brought me a casserole because I don't want to do anything <laughs> right now. Right. Like I am depleted. Everything about me is broken. 
And I said, but I can't even call into work tomorrow because I can't tell a soul what's going on. And so I can't call out of work and be like, man, I just don't have it in me to come in. I have to keep showing up in the world. You keep getting depleted. A hundred percent. And like nobody knows what's going on in our home. And so that's why I said it would be easier if he died because then people would be like, oh, yeah, of course, Lachelle. Of course you wouldn't come into work the day after your husband died, Mm. right? But the reality is, is that the safety and trust and what I perceived as the reality of our marriage is gone. It has died. And we've got to figure out what is a new marriage going to look like. And, and I will say that's another place. I mean, I could go into all these different, you know, like I said, there's so many different directions we could go with this conversation, but it's one of the hardest things for women to let go of is how do I get back what I lost? So she wants to take her relationship back to where it was. And I have to encourage them and say, you actually don't want that relationship anymore because what you had before was a life of deception you thought it was one thing, but your husband was living something different. And you don't want that as much as you think you do. Really what she wants is the peace and the safety. Now that they can repair, they can bring that back in. So mm, good point. Yeah. And, and can I ask a personal question? Sure. <laughs> well, I'm, I guess I'm about to. I mean, we can we edit have it out. been talking about porn addiction for like yeah. 45 minutes. So. so, yeah, 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 yeah. Let me ask now a personal question yeah, after sure. all that other stuff. Um, so, so how, so you're, you, I'm assuming everything is, is good with you and your husband. Um, you know, or, or is this something that, you know, how, how are things right now? I guess maybe I shouldn't assume. How are things right now? Uh, they're messy because we're two flawed humans who are married. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> right? So, yeah. and I do, and I'm going to be straight up with you. I'm always honest. Like, there has never been a point of arrival. There's never been a point of perfection. My husband and I are still learning how to love each other well. Yeah. With or without a porn addiction in this relationship. But I will tell you, there's a lot of shrapnel, right? That comes from this type of explosion in a relationship. So one of the things that has been a very difficult thing for us to grow through is that empathy is not a natural emotion that most guys who struggle with addiction have. If anything, it's probably an emotion that they, okay. And let me explain why. Cause empathy means that I can emotionally relate to you. I can see you having pain. I can tap into that emotion or memory of me having pain and go, oh, I feel that. That means I have empathy for you, right? Well, here's the, this is the crappy part about having addiction. Sex addicts have been avoiding emotions and emotional things their whole lives, (laughs) right? So my husband, I'm over here broken or, I mean, even simple. Here's a simple example. Like, I never could understand how he never cried at movies. I was like, what is wrong with you? Are you dead inside? Like, how are you not crying at this movie? It's like beautiful, right? Whatever it was. And he was just so disconnected. Because what happens when an individual throws out their bad emotions? They throw out the good ones too. Yeah. You can't sort them out as much as you think you can. And so... Now I have an amazing husband who's working on getting healthy, but empathy is still very much a difficult thing for him because 
he has emotionally disconnected from so much of his life. So all of a sudden I'm over here like expressing emotions and he's going, I, I, I don't know how to relate to you. And I'm going, what? Right. Cause I just want him to be empathetic. So where we get tied up, which I think is true for most married couples is because he doesn't know how to be empathetic. Guess what he does? He tries to fix it. Mm. All right. I hope my wife's not listening to this right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and Can we get back on the porn addiction now? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's gotten uncomfortable. That's, that's weird. Yeah, he asked me for real questions. So, well, so, that's a real question and a real yeah. answer. No, I, no, I, no, I'm just teasing. Um, actually, you're, you're talking to me now. Go ahead, please. Yeah. No, seriously, continue. But it's, it's true, uh, right? Because we don't, when you don't know how to show up for another person and just be empathetic and be like, gosh, I can totally, I, it's, I, I've never experienced this with like what you're experiencing, but I can feel what you're feeling because I can tap into another memory for me of ha- something similar. And that allows me to be empathetic towards you. Right. Yeah. And so when you have an individual who has avoided those types of situations, the majority of their life, the only other way they know how to show up for another person is to go, well, then let me just fix that for you. And this is where you'll hear, you know, couples consistently have conflict where I'm like, I don't, I said, I will say to him, now we have code, like we have language. I'm like, all right, I don't need you to fix it. Let me just tell you what's going on. I just got to get this out. And he's like, got it. Right. And God love him. He's so like working so hard not to tell me how to fix it. He's like, I can do this. I'm like, I know you can do it, buddy. You got this. Like, just be quiet. <laughs> so, oh, that like you are counseling me right now. Yeah. I am not kidding. I mean, this is great stuff because you're so right. Uh, a lot of times my wife will say the same thing because as soon as she states how her day went or something, I'm like, okay, here's what we need to do. Or here's what you need to do tomorrow. And she's like, sweetie, just, no, just listen to me. I don't, right. I don't need your advice. I just need to talk to you about this and know that you care and just, just yeah. listen and, and try to, you know, have empathy. And that is, uh, that is so true. But what I like about what you said uh-huh. is that first of all, you're real, right? I mean, no marriage. I mean, all marriages are messy. The best marriages are messy. And, you know, I think that the, once again, I'm not picking on church too much tonight, but I am picking on a little bit because sometimes we have that, idea that marriage is supposed to be perfect and and both parties are always going to be wonderful and do everything they're supposed to do. And there's never going to be anything that goes wrong. And regardless of what the struggle may or may not be in a marriage, everyone has messiness in their own personal lives and in their marriages. And the fact that you guys have been able to be so open, you know, that in fact you're able to talk about this and um, obviously I'm assuming that he's fine with you talking about this. He's probably it, I'm, in some ways, I'm sure this helps him too. Uh, just knowing, uh, people hearing about the story and seeing how actually he's he, tied up in the closet. He has no oh, idea. Yeah, he's, he's, <laughs> somebody's <laughs> holding him at gunpoint while you're doing this podcast. Episode. Right. But right. you know, I, I, I one of my best friends, um, he had looked up pornography for almost, uh, almost nine years. Uh, of his marriage before I th- actually I think it was it was it may have been almost 10 years um and had never told his wife it was something that he had done all of his life and um finally he came out and told her um that that he had been addicted to porn which she kind of thought he probably had done it before but as far as the level of he would of his addiction you know she had no idea about that and um their marriage now is absolutely phenomenal 
in, in comparison to in comparison to even what it was before, like before even she knew or before he even talked about his addiction. And when when he came out with it, um, you know, he obviously got help. Um, she they both went to counseling, and they literally their marriage is like, and they'll both tell you, our marriage is so much better now than it was even before. And and I want to want to bring that up because. Sometimes we just want to put a prayer bandaid on everything and mm-hmm. just, you know, tell people, okay, if you pray enough, if you read your Bible enough, then everything's going to take care of itself. And for a person who has an honest heart, they are going to pray more and they are going to read more. And sometimes they're going to realize there's not been any big changes in their life. They're still struggling with the same thing. They're not seeing any kind of progress. So I want to talk about for a few minutes, if, if you're fine with this, uh, professional help, because mm-hmm. I think that this is where we need to start pointing people in, in the direction of let's start really helping and pointing people in the way of, of professionals. Because as you as you pointed out earlier, there's a lot going on when you're dealing with addiction, when you're dealing with porn addiction. So you've got the guy who's dealing with addiction in, in the scenario we're talking about tonight. You have the the, the, the woman who is dealing with feelings of betrayal, of hurt, confusion, um, just really not knowing what's going on, what's happening. And so they're really both dealing with diff- completely different problems, yet it's the same issue uh, that's affecting them and manifested in completely different ways. And so sometimes there needs to be help. And so tell us a little bit about some tools that you would recommend if someone is listening to this and they want to they're in this kind of stuck situation, but they want to, they want to be better. They want to do better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the first thing I'll say out of the gate is that porn addiction is not a marriage problem. Mm. It's an individual problem. And most often you will hear that they will go, that um, a marriage that is experiencing this type of addiction will go to marriage counseling because they think something's wrong with the marriage. And that is actually not accurate. Right. And so that would just be a word of caution for you is that if you've stepped into marriage counseling and it it does not feel like it's changing anything for you, it's probably because your husband needs to get individual support and you may even need individual support for a period of time before you can begin to rebuild parts of that relationship. That's powerful. That is, I, I had never heard that before. Yeah. And it's, tri- it's tricky, right? Because you think, oh, porn addiction, sex, sex is marriage. Okay, we've got a marriage problem here. And so, and many marriage therapists can be very skilled and do amazing things. And they're going to talk about communication and honesty. And all those things are important. It's not that they're not. It's just you have to assess the coupleship in and of itself and determine, is this really the act, the most productive and correct time to be doing that type of work? And so if a guy, I'm just going to throw all these acronyms out there because these are things that you need to be considering is that, um, you know, a guy who's trying to navigate porn, I'm going to tell you the kryptonite to porn addiction. Are you ready? Yes. I just made a Superman. I just made a Superman connection that you guys should be really proud of me. (laughs) Are you not a comic book nerd? I'm not. Oh boy, I am. No, anyway, I'm a right. guy, but hey, it is what it is. You know? So here's your kryptonite. You ready? The kryptonite to porn or sex addiction is community. Yeah. yeah. Every time. And so you cannot do this by yourself. And the devil will always try to convince you that you can do this by yourself. First Peter, was it first Peter 5, 8? That he's stay alert. He's looking for someone to devour. 
Well, notice that that's singular. He's looking for someone, right? So of course, the idea of community is terrifying. But when you begin to watch how Jesus walked the earth, he walked in community. So we've got to be in community. So whether that means you're in a men's group or um, in some sort of counseling, there are specific certifications out there that I would highly encourage you to consider. And so for guys who are navigating sex addiction, there is a certification called CSAT, C-S-A-T, Certified Sex Addiction Therapist. These individuals are highly skilled and gifted in navigating and doing what needs to be done to help a sex addict unpack that addiction. And so it's one thing to help educate you. It's another thing to begin to teach you what it looks like to live in recovery. And so I always advocate for them to consider investing in pursuing sex addiction or a CSAT as part of their recovery process and definitely being in some sort of group, Um, whether that's through their church or through the counselor's office, whatever that looks like. For a wife who's looking to heal for herself, because like I mentioned before, her, her healing journey is going to look different than his because she's going to need to move into stages of grief. She needs to have permission to be angry for a period of time, because if we don't let her get angry, so here's, here's one thing I'll say, sorry, I'm not going to get all the tangents, but. Oh, you're fine. So often, we tangents. Okay. Yeah. So what often. makes the program so good. <laughs> so often. Women will say, I started seeking some sort of biblical counseling or mentor or whatever. And one of the first things they asked me was, have you forgiven him? You got to forgive him. That's what the Bible says. And so my question would be, what is she grieving? Mm -hmm. Well, most often women don't know what they're grieving. They just know that they've lost something. They can't really put a name on it. Because what we begin to do is we ask an individual to forgive something that they actually don't even know what they're forgiving for. Yeah. She doesn't know her loss. And Mm -hmm. so you've got to let her start with grieving. You've got to let her name those losses and disappointments and move through that and even experience anger. Because if we don't allow them to have that unmet grief, like unprocessed grief and anger will morph into bitterness. It just does. And so I've had pastors say to me before, I got this wife in my office. That guy's been sober for five years. He's done all the right things. And man, she is still spitting nails. And I'll say that is a woman who has never been allowed to be sad about her story Mm. because she was most likely, like I said, she had to get up and go to work. She had the kids to go take care of. She had this, she had that. P.S. Now he's out two nights a week doing group. So she's got these extra layers of responsibility that she's carrying because that seems to be the right thing to do, right? I want to help him get well. So of course, I'm not going to complain that you're going to men's group on, you know, two, three nights a week. I want you to get well. But on the other side of it, there was never this space or time for her to actually process her own healing. And so a lot of times we work with a lot of women who've been in marriages for 30 plus years. And they've known about this behavior, addiction, struggle, whatever, for 15-ish years or so, but they've never had time or permission to actually heal themselves. And so they hit this point where they finally become empty nesters and they're like, okay, now I can finally find time for me to heal. And so- What a life. I know, right? And I think she's hopeful. I think there are parts of all of those women that I get to walk with that I know that they're hopeful that their pain is just going to go away after time. But there are these little things. It's like these, um, one woman called it, she said it was like the death by a thousand tiny cuts. 
And so one would heal over and something else would happen and one would heal over and something else would happen. And she was just like, I don't know how I made it this far, but I have a lot of scars to show for it. So, so giving a, giving a wife permission and space and time to get angry, to allow the emotional process to take its, to, to, to allow the process to proceed. That's essential. And I would even say that it's going to be a whole lot harder, at least from my estimation. I'm by no means an expert. I mean, you know way more about this than I do and probably ever will. But it, it seems to me that just from a common sense perspective, if you just jump right to the end of forgiveness, there's a hollowness there. It's not going to be something that really has any real healing impact if you're not allowed to let those emotions take their natural course towards that end. Of course, forgiveness should be on the horizon. It's definitely something that should be part of the conversation. It, even from a Christian perspective, from a mental health perspective, forgiveness is essential. But if a wife is not allowed to go through that process, well, it, it's almost like whenever your kid takes their brother or sister's toy away and then they get hit or whatever else. And you tell them, now you tell them you're sorry you yeah. hit them. And they yeah. say, well, I'm sorry. Well, yeah, they apologized. And then you tell the other one, and you tell them you forgive them. Well, I forgive you. You know, and they, they're all mad and they, their forehead's wrinkled up. And you can tell they're saying it with their mouth, but their heart isn't in it. It, it seems like it's really similar in that case for a wife whenever okay. she's not allowed to go through that process. So, I mean, that's a very important thing. And what else would you add to that? Like, what would that next step be to allow the wife to grieve once she has been able to go through that process either on her own or with varying degrees of professional help, what is often the next step for her in that? Yeah. Usually the next step after grief is um, really just beginning to surrender her husband. Um, once she begins to actually have permission to say, this is awful and I can't believe this is my story, then also having this validation that you're giving her permission and validation to say what you've experienced is trauma, right? Because many of them still struggle with getting to that type of analogy. Like they're, they're like, that's so strong. That language is so strong. And you're going, right. But if you would allow yourself to say that this is trauma, you're going to heal different. Because when you have an individual, like I said, if you've had an individual who has experienced a, a car accident they've gone into the ER and they're bleeding everywhere. Well, they finally got some pieces sewed up. We don't ask them to get up and go serve dinner. <laughs> yeah, go run true. a marathon. Right? Yeah. Exactly. There's this healing process that has to take place and there's permission to not have to show up a hundred percent instantaneously. But the most natural step after a woman actually has the ability to actually grieve is to begin to surrender. And that looks like surrendering control, surrendering her husband, surrendering guilt, surrendering her fears, surrendering anger, surrendering. I mean, there's just so many there. And it's one of my favorite ways to talk to women because truly what I know is, is that God consistently offers us an invitation to do that. Yeah. But we don't actually know that that's what we have to do. Because if I'm honest with you, when that conversation started to come up for me and I just the thought of surrendering my husband I thought that in order to surrender him, I had to trust him. 
Yeah. Well, that's yeah. not happening. <laughs> well, of right? course not. So guess who I actually have to trust in order to surrender my husband? You have to trust God. hundred percent. Right. Yeah. However, many, many women will experience what we call a crisis of faith because mm-hmm. suddenly she feels set up. How, how on earth, Lord, did you know that this was going on? I sought you out to marry this man. I thought you gave me a yes. Like I feel betrayed by God. And so she needs to even have permission to, to be able to say that. And I don't, I haven't been in a lot of other communities outside of, you know, living in messy communities that I love to live in now that would say, oh, it's okay to say you're mad at God. Like yeah. most would actually reprimand you for that. And I'm like, no, I'm like, come on. Like, yeah. you know how many songs. people, I mean. <laughs> Read Job. Exactly. Yeah. But for some reason, we live in a culture now that that type of angst is so like dangerous or yeah. God can't handle it. And I'm going, are you kidding me? Like, I, finally, I've gotten to the point where I'm like, Lord, you made all of this. Like, you know how sassy I am and how feisty <laughs> and all those things. Like, if you didn't like it, that's your problem. Like, well, I don't want to know, say. If we believe God knows it anyway, whether we ever vocalize it in prayer Absolutely. or not, it's, al- it's already there. So you might, you know, we might as well just go ahead and, and let it hang out Absolutely. there and, and just yeah. be honest. And, and Well, because uh, let me just put it in this perspective. You both have children, I assume. Kevin, you have kids? I don't. I, okay. I'm the kid. I'm the kid. And All right. Well, okay. So I'll tell you how your parents feel about you. Okay. <laughs> so here's the deal. I have children, right? My daughter coming to me and telling me that she is mad does not bother me. Yeah. I'm honored that she would trust me enough to say, I am so mad at you right now. And I'm like, oh, okay, I can handle that. I'm the adult in this situation, right? So I'm going, thank you so much for telling me. I may not do anything different in my reaction and it may still have to be the way that it is. But the fact that she told me she was angry with me she gave me her truth. Yeah. And so often we will not sit with the maker and our healer. Like he gives us his names on purpose. Right. And we won't tell him the truth. And I just believe that he's so desperate to hear our truth. Just tell me because it says cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And that is part of that, right? So anyway, so that's a part of the the healing process for a woman is to allow her that space and permission to begin to surrender those things, but really feel them, be honest about it. And then we move into most women need to then step into this conversation about trust. And there's three areas of trust for a woman. She needs to rebuild trust with herself because most likely she suspected something and it didn't come out right away. And then when it finally did, she was like, I should have, I didn't trust myself. Right. So there's a trust. There's an intuition that's been broken for her. Uh, she needs to rebuild trust with God in some form or fashion, whatever that looks like. Or sometimes it's just strengthening trust with God, whether or not it's rebuilding. And then, of course, the obvious is rebuilding trust in our marriage. Um, but there's three areas of trust that need to be rebuilt. Then talking about your identity in Christ, because when you get to understand your identity and your value and worth, then you know what you're attempting to protect when it comes to saying, Hey, I need to set boundaries in our relationship because I, I Lachelle as a wife, I'm worth honesty. Yes. Right. And the day we stood at that altar, you said to me that you would tell me the truth and I believed you. And so I have to create a boundary around truth and say, this is a non-negotiable. 
But I, you know, we, our identity is so rocked, right? I'm, I'm not, I'm not enough. I'm not this, I'm not that. And so we've got to get our identity in Christ back in its rightful place. And that, and that trust takes time. And, you know, and and going back to talking about uh, the car wreck analogy that the, the man, this is something he saw coming from a long ways off. And by the time you actually hit the other car, he braced himself and it hurt, but he now, whew, okay, it's over with. All right. I saw the wreck coming. The wreck happened. It's out there. Okay. Whew, I'm good. I'm ready to, to do what I need to do and move on. And the wife's just now hearing about it. She's just now figuring this out. And so what can happen, we talked about this a little bit in our episode, what can happen from for the male is he can feel like, well, I told her I'm sorry. And I don't know why she's not trusting me. I don't know what's going on. Well, how long has this been? Well, it's been a week. You know, I don't know what's happening. Everything's good now. Or, or even it's been a few months. And and sometimes it, 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 it each relationship is different. A lot of that will depend upon where the relationship already was and personalities. I mean, then once again, there's a lot of factors that go into all of this. There's not a one size fits all. But I, one thing that does fit everyone is it takes patience on the on the the man's perspective that he's got to realize that this is why I've, I've, we've had guys talk to us. Well, I don't know why my wife still feels this way. I don't know. Why, and like, well, look, man, she's still recovering herself from all of this. She's still she's not sure if she can trust you. You pointed out, Lachelle, and, you know, some people may think that sounded crazy. That's not crazy. That's that's very normal behavior to, OK, I'm going to follow my husband to make sure he's doing what he needs to be doing. He says he's going to this group. Is he really going to this group or is he out doing something else he doesn't need to be doing? Maybe he's going, uh, you know, somewhere that has free Wi-Fi in his car and he's looking at porn. Maybe he's out prostituting. And those thoughts are normal. Why? Because that trust was broken. And once that trust is broken, anything can happen. My, my wife and I, uh, I remember I for for many years, um, I did not have a smartphone when smartphones first came out. I chose a flip phone. And one of the reasons why is because I did not want to be tempted on my phone. And uh, at that point in time, this has been uh, eight or nine years ago. Um, I, I didn't even have Internet on my flip phone. <laughs> and so all I could do is call and text. And uh, so finally, when I started, uh, you know, getting a lot better and, and the quite a while had gone by. I said, okay, you know, for work, I think it would be beneficial for me to have a smartphone. And, uh, she's like, okay, you know, let's, we'll do this. But even when I would go to the bathroom, if we were out on a date or just hanging out or go to the movies, I'd say, Hey, I gotta go to the bathroom real quick. And, you know, it, I came out right out and she's like, you know, well, what, what all did you do in there? I'm like, uh, like, what all do you want to know? I mean, I don't you want details. I mean, I went to the bathroom and, and uh, she's like, well, well, it kind of took a little bit longer than I thought it was going to take. Like, what else did you do? Like, that's all I did. I promise, you know, or, or there may be times when I was looking up, you know, uh, football stats for Alabama or something like that, you know, like, okay, that's what I was doing. But it's one of those things that it, it takes a long time. And if, if the man is not willing to be patient, it's not gonna, it's not gonna work the way it needs to. Mm-hmm. Um, because that will just continue to, I believe, uh, perpetuate that bitterness that'll, um, just that, that distrust of, okay, well, why do you want me to like automatically trust you right now? What are you hiding? Why do you, why, you know, do you just expect me to think everything's okay? So it can be a, just a, uh, it, it can be pretty difficult waters to navigate, but I just wanted to say that to the guys who are listening, 
that if they're wondering, okay, why has my wife not either a forgiven me? And as you pointed out, they may have not known what they're supposed to be forgiving. They, they, they're really trying to still figure out what's going on and they haven't been able to decompress. There's maybe there's still a lot of compression there that needs to decompress, but also just time and patience. And this one guy who I have just talked to over the phone and I'm his account, one of his accountability partners, and uh, he told me that when all he had been looking up porn once again since he was a teenager, young teenager. He's he's a little bit younger than I am, and so he was really raised on the computer. Mm-hmm. And he told me that this is something you know he had always struggled with. And um, so when he got when he got married, um, he thought that he would quit struggling with it. It's like, well, now I'm going to have good sex with my wife. Everything's going to be okay. And he's like, well, I was having good sex with my wife, but I still was looking up porn. And so um, he called me. Be- well, actually, we had Brandon on the podcast to talk about it. He actually called me that week. He's like, oh, man. He's like, I've been struggling with some more, you know, and I need to tell my wife. I need to tell my wife. He, I said, well, until you let it out in, into the open, as you pointed out, Lachelle, community, community and accountability, having that where you can't hide in the darkness, where you're not able to just do this without anybody, you know, to have that accountability. And I said, well, have you told anybody? He goes, no, just you. I was like, well, we live 10 hours away. So, I mean, as much as I would like to say I'm your community, I'm kind of not, you know, I'm just kind of the voice in your head you call when it, whenever you want to talk about this. But um, he said that what he struggled with the most at that point in time is that his wife was pregnant. And he said, I feel like if I tell her now, she's going to think, well, it's because she's pregnant and I don't find her attractive. I said, Brother, she's going to think that no matter when you tell her because mm-hmm. of of the the feelings up front. I said, you know, you just need to tell her. You just need to tell her. And uh, he did. He eventually did. Not the, the first week, but he eventually did. And, you know, it's just one of those things that I don't know exactly where I was going with that, but just wanted to share that story of going back to my main point that we we have to be willing to have that patience. And so he tells me from time to time, it's like, you know, I, I wish, you know, she she still is angry at me every now and then, or I can tell she doesn't trust me. And I was like, brother, this has just been six months ago. And I said, she's doing fantastic. She's doing fantastic. And I said, and you are too. I said, you guys are both doing fantastic. And, um, you know, he's had, now that I know the proper usage, a slip, he's had a couple of, of slips. And a lot of times he'll call and say, well, I started looking or I typed in the web address, but as soon as it came up, I slammed it down and told her and that was it. And I said, well, that's a win, man. I said, you're, you're getting better. You know, you're getting better. And, but it's just having that patience as well. If you're the male to have that patience with your, with your spouse, uh, as, as she's trying to decompress as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Lachelle, as we get ready to wrap up our conversation and bring this to a close, what would you say or or what would you like to share with our listeners whose spouse, whose husband is, you know, navigating these waters, they're navigating these waters. What word of advice and encouragement would you give to them? And also at the end of our conversations is when we always allow our guests and actually beg our guests to shamelessly plug whatever it is that they have online that they would like to share with our yeah. community. What- Michelle, I've heard there's something really cool called hope redefined. Yeah. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, before I hop into that, let me just give you um, some words, Kevin. So one of the things that is important to understand is that, fun fact, none of us know how to rebuild trust. It's not a class that we get in high school. 
right? Right. And most of the time when we experience broken trust in relationships, uh, we either, it's an abusive relationship. So it's like a parental situation where there's, you know, it's not safe. And so that's an unhealthy bond that happens. And so trust is never actually rebuilt, right? It just becomes this attachment. Um, but in most cases, if you are a healthy individual and you experience broken trust and relationship, what usually happens is you walk away from the relationship, right? Cause you hurt me and I'm not staying here. So we're just not going to be friends anymore. Right? So you and Jimmy, who live in the neighborhood, just don't become friends anymore. And so when you see this happen- Take my ball and go home. Exactly. And so, but when this is experienced in a marital relationship, it's much more difficult and none of us really know what is the right way to do this. So I'm just going to, I just want to throw that out there because that's a huge level of grace for both her and him. Like none of us really know what we're doing until we actually start to get tools to figure out how to rebuild trust. It's not a natural thing. The one other thing I'm going to, there's a couple things. The other thing I'm going to say is, is that trust is earned. It's not demanded. It's not expected. Mm-hmm. Think about when you were courting your person, right? You did intentional things to choose, to show that you were trustworthy. That was earned. She didn't just meet you for the first time at the whatever. And she was like, oh, I trust this guy with everything. We would all be like, there's a problem there, right? <laughs> yeah, no. yeah. Don't trust up front, right? Exactly. That's why you, you, it's date, you get to know the person. Yeah. Right. And so, and so what she is dealing with when a woman has that, like your friend is like, hey, this new slip has happened and he's confessed that is she's trying to figure out who the heck is sitting across from me right now. Because mm. I don't know this person. Like, I thought I knew him, but I don't know him because he's just given me a whole different layer of his life that is completely unknown to me. And so, again, that trust will be earned. And so we have an acronym we use called consistent action over time. That's how you rebuild trust. An individual consistently shows up or has a consistent action over a period of time. It will naturally rebuild trust. So let me go back to that example really quick about me driving past the you know, the church and checking up on my husband. Cause here's what was going on. My husband would come home from group and I'd be like, Hey, how's group? Right. And I'm just anxious. I want to hear like something like sh- anything. And you know what he says? Good. It is good. Got it, Lee. You guys must be BFFs. <laughs> and I'm like, well, like, what did you guys talk about? And he's like, Oh, I can't tell you it's confidential. And I'm like, well, what does that even mean? Right. Cause I'm looking for a bone, like tell me something. I, and by the way, when a woman asks you that question, she could care less about the other people in the group. She wants to know what's going on for you. Right. Yeah. Not about the other people in the group. And so I would just be like, well, what's going on? And he's like, Oh, it was just good. And that was it. That was the level of vulnerability he was willing to give me, which led to me believing he's not going. Cause I know nothing, right? I don't even know a person in the group. I don't, I don't nothing. Like it was all a mystery. And so that's where that hypervigilance started to come up. And all of a sudden I'm like, he's not at the group. I have to go find out. So is he even going? I mean, this is a big deal. This is a huge thing that has the potential to completely upend our entire relationship. And the only thing you can tell me about it is it's good. good. Yeah. Was, was he that? going, Lachelle? Was he going? He said he was going. 
Ryan's car was there. Pull him out of that closet and get him on That's the right. We got some questions, Dad. I know he goes now because he, he does it every Wednesday morning. I know he's in group now, but yes. <laughs> But that's what that's what that looks like is that consistent action over time, right? So you can see how him showing up with it's good and being very limited in what he gives me isn't rebuilding trust. What yes. I needed in rebuilding trust was some vulnerability. Tell me, tell me what's going on with you. Like you're a total mystery to me. Can I I don't even know who you are anymore. So that's a part of what we're looking for as a woman trying to rebuild trust with this person is like can you, can you help me know what's going on inside your brain? Now, granted, I'm going to give him a little bit of grace here. He probably doesn't know what's going on in his brain. And so I'm asking him for something that he can't obviously give me right in the very beginning, but just any effort towards being vulnerable with me matters. And yes. so that's that consistent action over time. So even with your wife, Kevin, like, as you were saying, like her saying, cause what you did was you did something that wasn't consistent in your action. You lingered in a bathroom. So that was, right, that that flag went up, like, what is going on in there? And yeah. I hope he says Alabama scores. Like, that's, <laughs> that's what she's hoping for, right? But that's what we're looking for is that consistent action. And so what the breakdown always typically is, is that he says, well, I said I was sorry. Well, at this point, your words mean absolutely nothing. Yeah, and I hate to make that, right? But it is everything about consistent action. So when a husband says, babe, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes to make you feel safe. I'll do whatever it takes to make you um, know that I'm sober, whatever it takes. And then all of a sudden she goes, okay, so I need you to go to this men's group. And he goes, oh yeah, I'm not doing that. And she's going, you just said you would do whatever it takes. So mm. you hear how to said, I, yeah. I said, and it's like, mm -mm, it has to be action. So he has to follow through with what he says. Well, and that that is so important with, of course, anything in life is the follow through. Because at the end of the day, um, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a big Alabama fan. You live in Knoxville. I'm really Tennessee, sorry. So roll yeah. Tide, Roll Tide. <laughs> we don't throw. I switch college football. We don't throw mustard out on the football field <laughs> or any or anything like that. But yeah. one thing, uh, Nick Saban, who is the coach for Alabama, he always says that everyone wants to win. If you were to ask anybody, do they want to win? They're going to say yes. But he said, if you start asking them specific questions, well, are you willing to get up at 4.30 every morning? Are you He said, that's when you start seeing people say, well, no, I'm not willing to do that. He goes, well, then you're not willing to win. And he said, the more specific you can be with questions is how you're able to see if someone's really willing to do what it takes. And it's the same thing as if you ask a lot of people, well, you know, are you willing to do this? Are you willing to do that? They're going to say yes. But then, well, are you willing to go to this meeting? Are you willing to go to counseling? Are you willing to put these tools that you're learning into place? Are you willing to have an accountability partner? Are you willing to have software on your computer? Are you willing to uh, perhaps cut this friend out of your life because they're not healthy for you? Are you willing to cut this TV show or movie? You start asking all those questions. That's when you figure out, are, are we dealing with someone who's really wanting to do, to do the right thing? Yeah. And, you know, and that, we didn't want to get into that tonight because that's a, I think that's a completely different conversation. Um, when you are dealing with someone who is showing that they don't have interest in changing, they're not, they're, they don't care. Um, and unfortunately that's becoming more normalized in, uh, in even a lot of Christian circles. And it truly breaks my heart. 
um, as as a man, but as a Christian man, to see how that has become so normalized and tolerated and accepted. Um, we were having this conversation with some of our friends about porn addiction, and I said, "Look, the the fact is statistically." Um, I forgot the exact stat, but, you know, 70 something percent of males here this morning um, have looked up porn in the past month purposefully. And I said, if we were to say 70 percent of all males here um, had gone out and gotten drunk and they were continuing to do so, there, there would there would be some consequences. There would be some discussion. There would be some accountability. But because uh, pornography now has become so normalized, and Lachelle, I told you this on the phone. I believe I told you this on the phone. Well, I was talking to a woman, and she said that uh, she has a friend, and her husband is looking up pornography, has no desire to change, um, just tells her that this is just what guys do. Uh, we joked earlier before we started recording saying boys will be boys, but that's literally kind of the type of, of answer he's giving her. Um, and he told her she, there's nothing she can do about it. She just has to submit to him. And if he wants to look up porn, there's nothing she can do about it. And they actually went to the the preacher and the preacher actually stood, stood by the guy and said, well, it's probably not ideal, but you know, that's just about every guy does it anyway. And if, if, you know, that's, that's what he does and you just have to get over it. Um, at that point you're dealing with a completely different situation <laughs> and I'm sure I'm, Sure, you would agree with that, mm-hmm. uh, and because now you're dealing with abuse, you're dealing with manipulation, you're dealing with—I mean, you're, you're getting into all sorts of of different things at that point, and that's why we wanted to keep it tonight, just on because hopefully people listening to this podcast are the ones with good hearts, are the one. I don't think they'd be wasting their time, you know, listening an hour and a half to uh, to this episode, but um, but there are other situations, and so I don't. One thing I wanted, and you probably you may have wanted to say this too, but. If, if you are a woman and you are married to someone who is treating you like that, um, I, I, that that's not what we're talking about tonight. Um, and so I never want to put anyone in a position where they feel like they're, they're, they're stuck, they have to be abused, that it's their fault, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or anything of that nature. I just wanted to kind of put that little mm-hmm. caveat in there just to make sure that those listening um, you know, know what we're talking about tonight. Yeah. Well, and I'll say like when, when we said boys will be boys before we got on there, you know, if I'm honest with you, it's probably one of the biggest places that I pray because I have five children. Now we have three daughters and two sons. So I'm raising three wives and two husbands. Right. And I want to assure you that it crushes me to think that the church has sold men, the crappiest bill of goods. And it's not just the church. It's really the culture that false intimacy is the best you're going to get. Yeah. That should enrage men because that is not how God created them to be. He created them to be fearfully, wonderfully made. Right. And porn is not the best it's going to be. It is it is a false bill of goods. It's, it's false. Yeah, it's fake. And so it makes me sad that even we would continue to live in any form of culture that says, yeah, this is awesome. It's, it's because it's not. And it just, yeah. So as a mom of two boys and a wife and everything, I'm like, no, like you were made for so much more than those things. And so don't let the world tell you that that's good. Yeah. Like we, we have a right to do that. So that would be my well, encouragement. 
Well, tell us a little bit more about Hope Redefined because the uh, the, the young lady who reached out to us, mm-hmm. she has uh, found your ministry, your resources, absolutely uh, to be just priceless and has really helped her and her husband. They're doing fantastic. Um, not to say there's not messiness, as you pointed out, in every marriage, but uh, they're, they're two individuals who, uh, according to her report, love each other and are now just doing great. She was able, um, well after he recovered, she still was dealing with a lot of the trauma, what we just talked about, never was able to really understand what went on, what was going on, what she needed to do, what that mm-hmm. trust looked like, how to rebuild. Some of the same things. That, and you just hit the nail on the head. I mean, most people you talk about rebuilding trust, but as you pointed out, what does that mean? You know, what does that right. look like? And, uh, and so she just really, really, really praised you to the high heavens. And so tell oh, us thanks. about that so that women who are listening to this podcast and, you know, Lee, I don't know about you. I told Lachelle, we probably have more female listening as far as our audience by and large, based upon who's on our uh, Facebook, who, who emails us tends to be more females. Um, so if there are females, uh, who have dealt with this are dealing with this and they really don't know what to do, I think mm-hmm. hope redefined is f- fantastic from everything I have just done a little research on you. So tell, tell us just a little bit more about that and some of the tools and resources you provide there. Yeah. So we, um, we are a non-for-profit, so we are a 501c3 non-for-profit. Um, however, for a good portion of the support that we offer, there is a cost associated with it. Unfortunately, that's just the nature of uh, working in what we do. Uh, but as a not-for-profit, what we actually do is we create a scholarship fund. So many of our women are supported financially by other, generally it's other women who have come before them. And that's what they do um, to do that. But let me just tell you, so we offer support and we we say in six ways. So we have online support groups that run pretty consistently. Um, They're private confidential groups and they're pretty small. So we keep them to about eight women at a time. And they're all facilitated by a trained professional, a coach or someone who's a trained betrayal trauma group facilitator. So we have um, really skilled individuals, women who are um, helping navigate those groups and lead them. We also do the one-to-one coaching. So I'd mentioned I'm a professional coach. We have four other coaches that are a part of our ministry um, that are all over the U.S. So we're we're all kind of placed all over the place. And coaching is a little different than therapy. Um, but a lot of women who are navigating betrayal trauma find that coaching can be really supportive because it helps them figure out how to move from here forward. Versus therapy generally focuses, not all the time, but sometimes generally it focuses on history. So it's kind of like what took place to get me to here. And so many women who are navigating betrayal are trying to figure out how do I get to tomorrow? And so coaching is a great resource, a great option for them to do that. Um, In addition to that, we have an online community called Hope Online. It's a private community that's completely separate from social media. It's a great, safe community for women to be able to connect. and have, you know, that ability to ask women for prayer and wisdom and all these great things. Um, we also do a retreat that we host outside of Knoxville twice a year. It's called Redeemed Hope. It's a four day, three night retreat for women who are trying to heal from betrayal. And uh, we just had our last one. We have our next one is scheduled for March 2022. Um, those retreats are small. We only take 14 women, so they fill pretty quickly. Um and they're not very expensive, but uh, they just cover the cost of what we need for them to be there. 
And then the um, last part is, like I mentioned, which is the scholarship fund. And I re- we really do consider that a way that we support women because we do understand that resources are dramatically impacted when it comes to trying to healing from addiction. If you're starting, your husband's working with a professional therapist and doing groups and this and that, oftentimes there's financial betrayal that's also associated with this. Mm-hmm. And so we never want a woman to not get good professional support. And so that's why we have the scholarship fund. It's not... Um, yeah, in order for them to be able to say, I can, I can get good quality support without it, um, impacting our financial resources if we don't have it. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Lachelle, this has been a great conversation. I've I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it tremendously. And I know Kevin has too, and would love to have you back on to discuss something related to this or tangential to it at some point in the future. Um, is there any other plugs that you would like to offer for the work that you have done or any other resources that would be beneficial that you would like to promote at this point? I mean, I would just say get on our website, hoperedefined.org. Um, we've got a lot of things on there. We've got resources, others that we recommend. So even if maybe we're not exactly what you're looking for, but you're, you, you're curious about other resources, we've got a lot of that listed on there, books, podcast groups. Um, we've got resources on there for men as well. Um, so if you're a guy who's like, I don't even know where to start, I would definitely recommend that. Reach out to us. I love being able to connect with individuals and help them find something that's going to really support them. So, Fantastic. I think that's obvious. That That's definitely obvious from what you have shared tonight. You definitely have a heart to serve. Mm, and thanks. thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule as a wife, as a mother, to be on our podcast. We appreciate it tremendously. And Absolutely. To our listeners, we love and appreciate all of you as well. I mean, this episode is an example of Kevin and I listening to you guys because so much of the follow-up that we received was, you know, what about resources for women? What about the wife's side, the wife's perspective in all of this? And you spoke, we heard you, and here's your proof. So if 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 you you ever think that someone needs to be on our podcast, let us know. (laughs) Let us know. We'll do it. But we do this for you guys. We love you all. We appreciate you all. And we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to reach out to us, drop us a line. Our email address is in the show notes, exploringfaithpursuinggrace at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. And we do this not only for ourselves, because this has been a great exercise and catharsis for us and being able to work through some of our own issues as far as doctrine and other things go, but we love helping you all as well. We love the encouragement that we receive from you and we love being a source of encouragement for others. So thank you all so much. Give us that five-star review on iTunes, share this podcast far and wide, share it with your friends, with your neighbors, even with your enemies, because they need Jesus too. We love you all. We wish you all a good night.